Welcome. Hey, my name is uh, Elliot Cherry, and I had a moment when I was standing over here that um, <laughs> if you have been around Midtown West um, for any number of weeks and we haven't met, um, that's great. Uh, but I was thinking to myself, there's probably people out there who don't know who I am. There's probably a lot of people who don't know who I am. Uh, who's this creepy guy like standing in the corner? Uh, like Matt called up new members, but this guy just stood over here and like didn't come up on stage. So anyway, my name is Elliot. Uh, I'm the pastor of another one of our Midtown locations. Uh, Midtown Fellowship Church is one church in the city, but we have five, about to be six uh, different locations in the city, different campuses, different spots where the local church gathers um, in different pockets of this city. Um, that's good for you to know that you're part of a family and part of a movement. We all share a tithe. We all share some central resources, central ministry services. We all share uh, like a youth group and a, a small groups department. Anyway, um, I tell you all that, one, so that you know, um, I'm the lead pastor of a different campus, but also um, it's good for you because I got to get back to that campus today and preach again, uh, which means that I have to be watching the clock. And so if you don't know me, I tend to preach too long. Um, who laughed at that? Um, <laughs> Pika, um, how dare you? Uh, but anyway, yeah, Midtown 12 South is where I uh, have the, the joy of serving. And, um, and it's, 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 uh, it's bittersweet to see uh, so many half faces that used to be among us that, that felt God's call and felt God's pull to, um, to come plant Midtown West. We miss you dearly. Um, is that Tyler Jewell in the back of the room? Tyler, you live in Texas now. Did you come to town just for this? Just for me. You knew I was going to be here. Dude, hey, welcome. Are you moving back to town? Are you sure? Should we catch up sometime? And You want to do it right now? Um, hey, dude, good to see you. You look great, half of you. Um, anyway, uh, so I need to be out of here, you know, with, with relatively uh, a, a decent um, time to get back to 12 South. So... I will make this as brief as I know how. Uh, if you have not been joining this series or if, if you're popping in and out or um, this is your first Sunday here, uh, Midtown as a family of churches is studying um, the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a lesser known Old Testament book of narrative. It's a historical account. It's actually written kind of like a journal entry from Nehemiah himself. A lot of uh, personal first person pronouns are, are used. And here's the brief context for Nehemiah before we dive into today's passage. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. God's people were in captivity in Persia. God's people were originally in captivity in Babylon. Babylon got taken over by the Persian Empire. Nehemiah, 150 years after the original captivity, uh, rises to power, rises to prominence. He is the cupbearer to the king of Persia, potentially the third or fourth most powerful man in the entire Persian kingdom. He gets word that on this Jerusalem home front, some refugees have been let free, set free to go back and begin to rebuild the capital city, the city of Zion, the city of God, to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. It's great news if you're a Jew. It's great news if you're an Israelite that's been scattered and taken into captivity. Maybe our homeland can be restored. Maybe God hasn't given up on us. Maybe all of his promises are still true for us. And so there's this rebuilding of hope. There's this rebuilding of excitement. That rebuild project has started. Nehemiah is still in captivity working as the cupbearer to the king. He gets word that on the home front, on the rebuilding front, the walls of Jerusalem have been reburned to the ground. It's been decimated and the building project has been put on pause. 
And so Nehemiah, from his place of prominence, says he gets this fire in his belly, he gets this burning in his bones, and he says, I've got to be the one to leave my posh life in the palace of power and money, and I'm going to lead a group back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and restore the city of Jerusalem. So he gets back home, he gets back to the home front, he gets back on the rebuilding front, and as is true for any of us, if we decide to follow Jesus where he leads us to join in his rebuilding project of restoring the world, anywhere we go where he has called us, we will face the things that Nehemiah faced. He faced pain, he faced loss, he faced resistance, he faced his own sin, he faced external hate, he faced internal resistance, he faced it all. And so this is teaching us, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus where he leads you, you're going to face the kinds of things that Nehemiah faced. So we've been looking at all these different aspects of what is it like when the vision that God has given you, which he has one for you, and if you don't know what it is, you're probably living it. He has you where he has you. And here's what we need to understand. When we do that, we're going to face the kinds of things that Nehemiah faced. We're going to face the resistance. We're going to face the monotony. We're going to face the confusion and the doubt and wonder, is all this working out anyway? So last week, the passage was about Nehemiah came across this outcry of the labor force, this outcry of the poor, this outcry of the, the low-class citizens in Jerusalem and said, hey, we're having a tough time paying our bills. We're having a tough time paying our taxes and feeding our family because we've given up all of our money and income to come work for you, Nehemiah. And now we've borrowed all this money from the elite and from the wealthy, and they're oppressing us with this heavy taxation, this heavy interest and they're actually taking our sons and taking our daughters, and we're dying over here. So Nehemiah calls for a, a, a canceling of the debts. He calls for a restoration of the poor and their property and their people that were enslaved. So that's what we're coming out of. Nehemiah has just rebuked the wealthy for their oppression of the poor, okay? Now I'm going to have Jesse Walker. Where's Jesse Walker? she here? There we go. Um, Jesse's going to come read for us Nehemiah chapter 5. This is coming right out of uh, the wealthy oppressing the poor with their heavy interest on the debt. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Nehemiah five fourteen through 19. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were laid before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them, for their took them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants sorted it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that was prepared at my expense, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jesse. Uh, okay, so coming off of last week's section, like we said, the context, this is, this is quite startling. This is, this is quite something that Nehemiah has, in the previous section, called for what was known in ancient Israel a jubilee, a canceling of all the debts, a setting free of the captives, of letting the slaves go, the, the indentured slavery of the debt that was oppressing them. 
So Nehemiah calls out the nobles, calls out the wealthy, and rebukes them and says it's jubilee time. It's canceling of the debts. So that's good. That's, that's good leadership. Nehemiah did a good job. But here in this closing section of chapter 5, Nehemiah goes one step further. He almost does the unthinkable. Because it's good for any leader to stop any oppressive system. It's good for any leader to speak against anything that might be oppressing or enslaving the people. But Nehemiah doesn't just stop those in power from abusing and preying on the poor. That's not enough for him. What we just read in these six verses says that Nehemiah, at great cost to himself, now enters the arena of actually serving the poor and serving the needy. He doesn't just stop the wealthy and the nobles and the elite from oppressing them with their debt. He actually says, I'm actually going to join the party and say, I actually want to serve the poor and provide for the needy among us. What was just read to you was that for 12 years, that's how long in that opening verse we're told that Nehemiah was the appointed governor of that region. Nehemiah comes with King Artaxerxes' power and his authority to say, I am now the governor and the ruler of this entire region. And for the 12 years that Nehemiah was the leader of that region, the appointed governor, he would have been entitled, he would have had the right, he would have had every privilege as the governor of that region to tax the people in a heavy way. We're told right there that there were previous governors, previous rulers of that region that taxed the people in a very heavy way. And Nehemiah says, not only am I not going to tax you to pay the king's taxes, which our region has to do, what every governor before him would have done would have said, yeah, we need X amount to go and pay the king's taxes, but I'm going to do a little X plus something to make sure that I get to pad my own pockets. Hey, I got a family to feed too. Hey, I got, I got a business to run. I got an empire over here to kind of help manage. I have things that I I need to get done. And so why don't we pay the king's taxes collectively, but then let me take a little bit more off the top so that I can pad my own pockets in my own bank account. Previous governors did it. They had the right to do it, and there was nothing inherently wrong about doing it. It was expected. It was the way business was done. People who had the power to tax would oftentimes tax even more to pad their own pockets. We're told in this passage that the previous governors shekels of silver means nothing to you, but here's what it actually meant. That was essentially two and a half months of a day's wage. So like 75 days of, day, of a day labor wage, which is what these people would have been making and, and, and have, had to afford. So 75 days of wages every day collected from the people. So these hundreds, potentially thousands of people that are working on the wall and were living in this rundown region, they would have had to collectively get about 75 people's single day wages and pull them all together to give to the governor in the region at the time. Nehemiah says, hey, every day I could require of you two and a half months of wages and I'll send some to the king, but I'm going to pad my own pockets. But I'm not going to do that to you anymore. I'm not going to take this excess off the top of you because it's oppressive to you. You're already poor and needy. You already don't have what you need to get by. I'm not going to take more from you. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. Can you throw this back up on the, on the screen? Verse 14 and 15, he says that for 12 years, see, he says it right there. See it right there? Kidding. Do we not have, it's okay, it's okay. I didn't, I didn't prep you that I was going to call that back. I'm sorry. Just trust me, this is what it says. For 12 years, he says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Okay, Nehemiah, as the governor of this region, had rights. He had privileges. There were precedents set. This is what governors did. 
But Nehemiah didn't take what he could have from the people. The governor under Persian policy had the right to receive taxes from the people to support their own house, support their own servants, and support their own diplomatic expenses. But Nehemiah did not use his prerogative. He did not use his position. He did not use his rights. He forfeited. He gave up his rights in order to not oppress or burden the people in front of him. Nobody does this. Nobody does this. Usually a well-to-do person will use their political power or their organizational power to increase their wealth and increase their position and increase their power. But Nehemiah never demanded the food and tax allotted to him that he could have as the governor of that region. What political leader do you know that has ever done this? Who has ever gotten poorer as a result of their being in office, like intentionally lost money as a result of their being in office? Quick Google search will tell you that presidents increase their wealth sometimes 50 or 100 or 200 percent just from having been in office. Like they will go from being like your run-of-the-mill millionaire to like hundreds of millions of dollars because of the book deals, the speaking engagements, and the power that comes with their new brand. Nobody does this. They take the rights and the privileges of that office and say, hey, I worked for this. I've been, I've been ordained by God to be in this office. I will take with it the rights and the privileges that come from this position, and I will increase my wealth. Nobody gives up their rights, gives up their privileges for the sake of the people in front of them. But do you know how hard this is to do for us? I'm not talking about like, are you going to run for political office? If you are planning on doing that, I don't want to hear about it, okay? I'm probably not going to vote for you. But if you, it, like, I'm talking about like in your life, like in your relationships, in your family relationships, in your spouse relationships, in your roommate relationships, in your work relationships, how often do you think I will intentionally go without something that is due to me so that I can serve the people in front of me? Like, I'm not just, and I'm not just talking about money or resources or food. I'm talking about, like, when you're in an argument with somebody, when you're in an argument with your spouse or your mom or your dad, when you're arguing with them and you get treated a certain way, do you know how instantly when we get treated the way we don't want to get treated, how instantly we receive this position of, I now have the right to respond to you how I want to. I now, I now it is my right, it is my privilege because I'm being treated like this to now not um, be a good steward of this moment, but actually use my right, and I will claim what is rightfully mine here. I will get angry, or I will get, I will get manipulative, or I will get, I will get shut down. What would it look like in relationships? Can you even imagine in a in an in an interspousal relationship when you're arguing over something, which I know Midtown West couples never do, but can you imagine in a spousal relationship in an argument where you are in a fight with somebody and you say, "I'm going to intentionally choose to put aside what is rightfully mine in this moment." and not use it against you, and actually serve you instead. Nobody does this in our businesses and in our interactions to decide intentionally, like Nehemiah, to not take what we could from someone, what we have every right to, so that we don't further burden or oppress them. By the way, if you're going to do this, it will cause you pain. Giving up your rights is a pain. It's excruciating. It's a painful thing. It will cost you something. It will cause pain for you to give up your rights. Giving up your rights, giving up my rights, is potentially the most offensive and easily rejected idea of the modern moment. And I'm not making a political statement at all. I'm talking to people on all sides of the spectrum. 
to give up something that is rightfully mine to do. To say to myself, I have a right to this and I will intentionally not take that right for the sake of someone else's good. Give up something that I have the position and the right and the dignity and the, and the privilege of, of having as my own. Give that up for someone else's sake, no thanks. Why is it so difficult? Why is giving up our rights interpersonally or relationally or, or uh, communally so difficult? Plenty of philosophers uh, have commented on this, social critics that understand you know, the human experience of the modern day. But it comes from this reality that the modern sense of self, where you get your identity, where you get who you think you are and who you want others to think you are, your sense of self, philosophers would call it your existential self, like who you like to think that you are and who you want other people to think that you are. Our modern sense of self comes from the self. And philosophers, Charles Taylor is kind of the grandfather of this idea, but modern philosophers would say this is the first time in human history that we as an entire culture and society, which all this has infiltrated our own brains, we're not immune to it if we're Christians, that we would say we get to decide who we are. We, as, as the self, get to decide what the self is, and I need nothing outside of myself to be able to tell me who or what I am. The modern sense of the self is rooted in the self. And so, to give up one's rights feels like the most inauthentic thing to do. If I give up my rights, I won't know who I am anymore. If I give up my rights, I don't get to say what's right for me. I don't get to say what's right or wrong for you. I don't get to tell you who I am anymore. If I give up my rights and I give up that position, I'm not sure I would know who I am I can't give up the right to choose me because that would feel like losing me. If I don't get to choose what I am, if I don't get to choose who I am, if I don't get to tell you what I will and won't do with my time or my resources or my sense of self, then I will lose my sense of self. So it's terrifying. To give up my rights would be, it would seem to be to commit treason against the very kingdom that I have committed to build, which is the kingdom of my own autonomy and the kingdom of living a life of no pain. Remember, giving up your rights is really painful. And so I've chosen to build a kingdom where I get to be the one that rules the kingdom and I get to be the one to tell you what is best for me and this is just self-care and this is just what I need right now. And here's what tends to happen. When we go on you know, a journey of self-awareness or a journey of self-care, some of those things are great. What that tends to do is, is it tends to turn the helix loop back in on us and we only become aware of ourselves. And so we, giving up my rights, are you kidding me? I need a life that's pain-free, and giving up rights is painful. Giving up rights, are you kidding me? I have to always be able to choose me. And so giving up that right seems inauthentic, seems like treason against the very kingdom that I have set out to build. So we cling to our rights like our very sense of self and identity depended on it. And I'm, I'm applying this to, to like every sense of the modern experience. Like, I don't, if, if, you, if you have a family in here, and I'm just, I'm speaking, like, way too close to home, it's never good for a preacher to really confess all of their dark sins to people, because I don't know you, and I don't trust you, okay? But, like, this, this is a dark one, okay? And you're going, oh, that's, that's so not dark. It is, because it's, it's revelatory of this. 
Like how often on a Friday afternoon or how often on a Saturday morning is it my right after a long week of work? And I've been doing God's, I work for Jesus. So I have the right to take, to, I have the right to not do anything when I'm home. I have the right to sleep in on Saturday. I have the right to watch game day on Saturday instead of playing with my kids because I'm tired. And so, but, but I have a right to be tired. And so don't I have the right to just choose me for a few hours? I haven't been choosing me all week. I've got the right to do this. But it also applies to the other end of the spectrum. Like how often do we claim our rights in our view of our sexuality? Like I get to decide what is best for me with my sexual identity and my sexual practices. This is what's right for me, and you can't take this right from me. This is what, this would be to lose my sense of self. This would be to lose who I've created myself to be. And so anywhere on that spectrum, like Saturday morning demands to your own view of your own sexuality and everything in between, this is preposterous. Do not infringe on what is rightfully mine. Do not infringe on my rights. So can you see for a moment, as we look like back at Nehemiah through the modern lens, can you see this incredible thing that Nehemiah is doing? He's giving up his rights for the sake of the people. He's giving up his rights for the good of those in front of him. He's giving up his rights to serve those around him. He had a chance to pad his own pockets. 40 shekels of silver a day he gave up. And who would blame him? Like, who would have blamed Nehemiah if he had taken this right? Who would have blamed him if he had said, you know what, I'm going to take it. I'm sorry. This is just the way that this, I got a lot going on. Oh, and by the way, I left my posh, prestigious life as the cupbearer to the king living in the palace, and now I've got to live outside of a rundown Jerusalem. I think I'll take my 40 shekels. He would have, he would have had every right to say, look at how much stress I'm under. Do you know the project I've, I've, I've set out to do? I'm, I'm rebuilding God's city. I got some stress. I got some anxiety. I got some haters. I need some of this stress relief. But he doesn't do it. For 12 years, for 12 years, do that math real quick. For 12 years, he doesn't take from the people what he could have. This isn't like, let me do this for the first couple of months on the job so people think I'm like one of the bros and then I'll go back to like being the governor and oppressing them. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not gonna do this the entire time I have the position and the right to do this. The only way anything ever changes for the better in this world is with action like this. The only way anything changes for the better is with action like this. Only when people choose to give up their rights for the sake of those in front of them does anything ever change for good. And yes, it's really easy to get out the air and go, yeah, our political system's so messed up. Yeah, all the politicians, it's so polarizing. Nobody does this. And look at how messed up the country is because nobody does this in positions of power or leadership. But let's not do that for a minute. Let's talk about you. Nothing will ever change in your marriage until people start giving up their rights to serve the people in front of them. Nothing ever changes in your relationship with your friends. Nothing ever changes in your relationship with your sister. Nothing ever changes for good unless people decide to give up their rights for the sake of serving the people in front of them. To lay down the things that you feel like you're entitled to. To lay down the things that you feel like you deserve to hold on to something. So I don't know where this needs to hit you. I don't know where you fight for your rights. I don't know where you demand to have you like hold on to something that you think you've earned and you're entitled to and your position and how you've been treated. 
But this is where and this is how redemptive change occurs. I'm not talking about like serving abusive people. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about living a boundaryless life. I'm talking about what does it look like in your interactions with people to not hold on to what you think you have a right to, to give it up for other people's good. Nehemiah is rebuilding a city. You guys are planning a church. What does it look like, like Nehemiah, he knows he's building a culture. He knows he's building a kingdom. He's rebuilding Zion, the city of God. And he's putting this at the bottom of the core value, saying this is the kind of new Jerusalem we're going to build, where the leaders don't take oppression uh, lightly on the people, where the leaders don't use their position to take for themselves, where the leaders actually use their positions to serve and not take. They give up their rights. But not only did Nehemiah not take what he could have, that's one beautiful thing, I'm not going to take from you. I'm not going to take what is rightfully mine from you. He also gave when he didn't have to. It's the other side of this beautiful coin that Nehemiah is showing us. Look again at verse 17 and 18. Nehemiah gave when he didn't have to. It says, moreover, we up there? Oh, we can wait. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm ye- I've yelled at you twice, okay? Give up your right to sit at the soundboard. Slide over one. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> God, I'm never going to be back here again. Uh, verse 17 and 18. Go one more. It says, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. So Nehemiah, let me just recap what, you just, what we just read. Nehemiah is not just not taking the taxation from the people and not oppressing them with a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver extra taxes. He's also treating them nightly. He's throwing them nightly a feast. He's giving to them something. So as governor, as the representative of the Persian Empire to this region of the empire, he would have not just wanted to, for the region's sake, make sure his people were well-fed. He also, as Jerusalem's getting a little bit of buzz about it, as people are like starting to hear, wait, Jerusalem's being rebuilt, this capital city's being rebuilt, there would have been Jews from around the area, from around the region that have been scattered that would have come back to Jerusalem to help and hear about this project. But there also would have been nobles and officials and dignitaries from other kingdoms nearby and other regions nearby that would have said, I want to go see this. And so as the representative of the Persian Empire to this little region, he was expected to when these other foreign dignitaries came in and wanted to see what was happening in Jerusalem, he's now representing the Persian Empire. You need to show them a good time. It's like the soft open, the soft launch of a, of a new restaurant. Like they put their best foot forward when there's new people in town. And so this would have happened regularly and sometimes without announcement. Someone's here and wants to see what this is like. Someone's here and wants to see the glory of the Persian Empire on display. So he would have been expected to host these people, to feed these people, to throw a party for these people. And Nehemiah is doing this on a nightly basis for the workers and the laborers and the Jews that were among him helping to rebuild. And he's expected to do it for anybody that would travel. That's what it says right there in the end of verse 17, besides those who came to us from other nations that were around us. And the cost of all of this, you can imagine, some people think this was upwards of 500 people on any given night. For all of this cost, 
Nehemiah said, I'll pay for all of it myself. It says right there, now it was prepared at my expense for each day. He's setting a feast for these people every night. And he's not serving them ramen and crackers, okay? I'm not talking about like 210 Jack ramen, like the cool ramen, okay, that's expensive. What's the cheap ramen? Morocco or something? Moroccan? Maruchin? What's it called? Oh, don't act like you haven't eaten ramen, okay? This week with my kids, okay? We got poor people in here. What are we doing? What are we eating? Okay, I'm with you. I'm one of the people, okay? We are not moving on until someone tells me the brand name of this ramen. What is it? What is it? Not Top Ramen. Is that what it's called? Okay, we'll go with that. Top Ramen still sounds too fancy for what I'm going for here. You're killing the point. No, Nehemiah is not serving them Top Ramen and crackers. Look at what he's serving them. Look at this feast that he's serving them. Now it was prepared at my expense each day was one ox and six choice sheep, say that five times fast, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. He's setting a feast for them. He said, I'm going to set you out some steak and some gyro meat every night. And on the tenth night, there's going to be a party. And you're not going to be able to drink all the wine that I'm going to throw at you. We're going to have wine in abundance. There's going to be leftover wine on the tenth night of the feast. I'm going to throw you a feast. I'm going to set you a feast. And I'm going to pay for it all myself. I'm not going to use the taxes that I could have taken off the top to pay for all this. I'm also, he was due, he had the right to take the food allowance from the governor, which also meant he could have taxed the people for their food. Hey, I need need Johnny, I need you to bring me all of your oxen, I need you to bring me all of your sheep, and I need you to provide the wine, and this is my right as the governor, that I'm going to take the food and wine allowance to serve this feast every night. No, 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 what was prepared at my expense, I didn't take the food allowance from the governor. I'm going to take the hit and I'm going to pay the bill so that the poor and the needy among us, the poor that just four verses ago were being oppressed by the debt slavery system, now I'm going to lavish upon you at my table. Nehemiah not only didn't take what he could have, he also gave when he didn't have to. Did you catch in there, and this is is fun to sometimes in a historical narrative uh, like the Bible to, to like, imagine ourselves into the text, like to go there in our minds, like use, use your redeemed imagination to imagine walking into Nehemiah's uh, pad on this nightly feast and you're one of the laborers in Jerusalem and you're one of the poor that's been oppressed and you're walking into this nightly feast. Did you catch in the description how many qualifications Nehemiah gave at the door of his house for entrance into the feast? Zero. He doesn't ask for a fee. He doesn't ask for a donation. He doesn't require any proof of commitment. He doesn't say, hey, how many hours did you work on the wall this week? He also doesn't say, hey, have you been to synagogue? Have you been to the temple? Have your sacrifices given? Have you met with the priests this week? How committed are you to this vision of Jerusalem? He also doesn't say, hey, are you, are you spreading rumors about me? Are you talking behind my back? Are you making sure that we have some morale around here? He's not doing any of that. He simply says to the people that show up, come and feast at my table and I'll pay for it. Zero qualifications given to come and feast at Nehemiah's table. And then all of that lands, all of that leads to the last verse of this entire section. What does Nehemiah say is the motivation for doing all of this? Why is he doing it? 
Verse 19. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. He says, remember me, O oh God. Remember me with favor. Remember me with goodness. Remember me with mercy, O oh God. Which means, Nehemiah is saying to the reader, this is his journal entry, I didn't do this for the people's recognition. I wasn't doing it to be liked. I'm not doing it to provoke the haters. Like look at you know, Sambalot and Tobiah, who we've heard from some who hate what Nehemiah is doing. He's also not doing it to be self-righteous, like look at what a great guy that I am so that people start spreading good rumors about me. Nehemiah is saying, I did this and I'm pleading with all of my heart for the Lord to see me, for the Lord to remember me. Being remembered by the Lord, being remembered by the Lord with favor and goodness was Nehemiah's greatest longing. I dipped into my storehouses. I gave, I, I didn't take when I, when I didn't have to take, I didn't take what I could have taken and I gave when I didn't have to give and I did it all at my own cost. I went into my own pockets to pay for all of this. He's saying, I did it all that I might be remembered by the Lord with favor and goodness. This is his deepest longing. This is a lot of pain for Nehemiah in the hopes that the Lord would remember him with favor and goodness. It was his deepest desire. Do you think it's yours? to be remembered by the Lord with favor and goodness. Do you know that you come into this world looking for a face that's looking for you? And I wish I could tell you that after you're a newborn and you come into the world looking for a face that's looking for you, I wish I could tell you that once you hit like elementary school, that that goes away. But the affliction of that desire does not dissipate, it actually increases. You come into the world looking for a face that's looking for you. Or translation, you come into the world looking for a face that would remember you with goodness and favor. In fact, if I could get some of the wonderful therapists that serve at Midtown to sit down with you one-on-one, -on -one, we could sit down with you and we could show you how essentially in your story Every move you've ever made in your breath of a life has been trying to secure a face that would remember and find you. It's why you're here this morning. It's why you got out of bed and didn't sleep in to come here this morning. It's why you brushed your teeth. It's why you work the job that you have. It's why you look at porn. It's why you're so tired and exhausted it's why you hate the way you look. Is there a face I could secure that would remember and find me? It's also why we hold on to our rights, that our sense of self that comes from the self seems far too threatened if I were to give that up. It's why we're terrified to give them up. Because to hold on to my rights and, and to think about giving them up means that someone could take advantage of me. What if I give up my rights and people forget me? What if I give up my rights and I don't even know who I am anymore? I've so grown just to know who I am because of the rights that I hold on to. What if I gave all that up? I might have to relearn who I am. 
So if we hear Nehemiah's cry and his prayer, Lord, would you remember me, look on me with your favor and your goodness. And we could join that with the cry of our souls, the cry of our hearts that would say, Lord, I'm still looking for a face that's looking for me. I'm still looking for what Nehemiah was hoping for. And it wouldn't be until we would meet Jesus. Jesus, the far better. Jesus, the perfect Nehemiah. Jesus, the king of the cosmos who gave up all of his rights to serve those in front of him. Jesus, Philippians 2 says, that didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but gave that up that he might come and serve you and become obedient Obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his rights in order to serve those that were oppressed by their own sin. Jesus gave up his rights. Jesus, the better Nehemiah, gave up his rights, not because you were right and you deserved him to. Jesus gave up his rights because you were so wrong. And because we were stuck in our wrongness, Jesus leveraged every resource of the kingdom and directed it towards the needy and the poor. Jesus, like Nehemiah, better Nehemiah, not only didn't take what he could have from the people, he also gave when he didn't have to, to the people. The Second Corinthians 8 says that though he was rich, Jesus had every resource in the universe. He had equality with God. Second Corinthians 8 says that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, that through his poverty, you might become rich. That not, not rich in the prosperity gospel sense, rich in the sense that you might have all that you ever dreamed of having through Jesus' poverty. Jesus becoming poor for your sake is the place where you get everything you've ever wanted. Jesus lost all that he had in order to lavish you with what you long for. Because what Jesus accomplished by what he gave up means that he now has secured for us forever the Lord's remembrance of you. Jesus has secured forever the Lord's favor for you permanently. In the language of Nehemiah, he has remembered you forever. And like Nehemiah, he sets us a feast. Like Nehemiah, it's a feast at the table that he has prepared. And it's a feast of a table, not just of his provision, but of his affection. And Jesus, Jesus not the governor of a region, but the king of the cosmos comes and without qualification, just like Nehemiah, without qualification comes to you and says, come and feast at my table. I paid for this with all of my own resources. I paid for this with my life. I paid for this with my blood. Come and take from my table. Do you know that Jesus offers you to come and take from him? Just like Nehemiah was in a micro sense, Jesus in the astronomical sense would say, come and take from my table every day if you need to. Come and feast at my table and be satisfied. Come to the feast at the table that I have prepared that you might be satisfied by eating here. Psalm 23, infamous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's very Instagrammable, very Pinteresty. Um, but the lesser known section of the, as that psalm goes on, David, the psalmist, starts talking about a feast that his good shepherd prepares for him. And here's what he says about the feast. He says, it's kind of it's interesting. It's a little intriguing. He says to the good shepherd that, that he's singing to, he says, you prepare a table for me. 
You set a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. What does that mean? Who wants to eat at a table with their enemies? <laughs> I want to eat at a table with my friends, not my enemies. But the psalmist is singing about this feast that the shepherd has prepared for him, the good shepherd has prepared for him. You set a feast before me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's saying, good shepherd, you prepare a, f- a place for me. You prepare a feast for me in the face of the very people and the very places that I thought would destroy me. The very parts of my story that I thought disqualified me from this table. You set a feast for me right there in the face of my enemies, in the very places where I thought I would have been destroyed. Jesus, you come and set a feast for me there. In that place, not trying to forget that place. You make me feast in front of my enemies so that I have to see that your feast means that my enemies, the places that wanted to destroy me, can't destroy me anymore. And what does Psalm 23 say at the end of this feast? In other words, if this feast language has been introduced to this uh, shepherding psalm of Psalm 23, what do the dinner guests get up believing from that table? What do the dinner guests leave that feast believing as they leave that feast that that the shepherd is set in the face of the enemies? What do those that come and take from Jesus' feast, what do they leave that feast believing? That's how the psalm ends. It says, I know goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You can't feast at Jesus' table and leave there believing that you will be forgotten. Surely I know goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. In other words, because Jesus gave up his rights to set you a feast, the Lord will always remember you. That what Nehemiah was dying to know, could it be true? Because of Jesus, we now know with certainty it is true. That the Father you came into the world looking for has actually come into the world looking for you in the person of Jesus. So if you're not a Christian in the room, I don't know what you've heard about this Jesus, this feast-setting Jesus. But please know that this feast-setting Jesus who paid for the feast with his own blood is the Jesus of the Bible. I know you got questions. I know you got problems. I know you got pain. I know you got disagreements. Do you know how those kinds of things get healed? (laughs) Usually over a meal. Would you come and would you eat at the feast? Would would you take a chance eating at his finest meal with him? But if you are a Christian, if you have feasted at Jesus, at Jesus' table before, if you have eaten of his feast, please hear this. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Not all the days you feel loyal to Jesus. Not all the days you feel like you deserve the feast. Not all the days you're sorry for what you've done. And certainly not all the days that you feel like you could help foot the bill. In fact, all the places where you feel like you have looked for other faces, all the places that we talked about that drives you looking for a face that's looking for you, Jesus knows all that about you and still tells you to come and feast. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life because Jesus gave up his rights for you. Because Jesus gave up his rights for you, you have the guarantee that you will always be remembered by the Lord.
goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You know, in order to, to follow something, it means you have to be pursuing it. You can't follow it if you're not already chasing it down. Christian, would you dare to believe that because Jesus gave up his rights, the Lord is still coming after you? He's still doing it for you in the presence of your enemies. The love of God simply cannot let you go. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we're weary from looking for the face that's looking for us. So would you come this morning, by the power of your spirit, would you set a feast for us again? Would you give us the faith to believe that goodness and mercy are following us and that we might be melted in such a way by feasting with you that we're willing to give up our rights like you have for us. Guide us now as we sing and cry out to you, we pray in your name. Amen.